0: Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Thursday the 23rd of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up.
1: No, I won't be contesting the leadership of the Social Democrats. I think for me there's a multitude of different ways of demonstrating and showing leadership. And me, I'm somebody that likes to be part of the team, the collective, and I'll be showing leadership within the party, but that won't be in the top position. The cucumber,
2: interestingly enough, is one that you wouldn't store in the fridge. Shocked at this. I know, I know a lot of people (laughs) are.
3: In Ireland, uh, we used to talk about the, uh, you know, Anam Cara, the sole friend. So uh, Dave was, uh, Dave and I were kind of the sole friends through all those years.
0: Well, after the resignation yesterday of co-leaders of the Social Democrat Party, Rosheen Shortall and Catherine Murphy, Anil Lawler spoke to Jennifer Whitmore, Social Democrat TD for Wicklow. Um, so, look,
4: yesterday, what came out of the blue uh to be honest um so it was it was a, a big day yesterday a big day of of emotions and you know at the moment now i'm just going to take some time to think it through i need to talk to my family and and to my team so i haven't made a decision mm-hmm. um as of yet and uh yeah so i'm just going to need need some time i think to process uh apparently gary and gannon and the, is
5: going to be backing holly kearns today is that right
4: uh, I haven't actually heard that, um, so I'm not sure. I, I, I do believe, I think he, he could be doing media today, but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't actually heard that specific right. element of it. We spoke to a number of Social Democrat councillors uh, earlier in the
5: programme. They were talking to Ashling Maloney. Um, a couple of points. Uh, there was a court councillor who, who backed uh, Holly Kearns. Um, the media is tipping her to be the favourite. Would you, If you do decide to run, would you want to work with her as co-leader?
4: Do you know, I think what yesterday demonstrated, and actually not even just yesterday, but you know, since we've all become elected is we work really well together as a team. And um, you know, that the the four TDs Ds and, and the two leaders have have um, you know, we, we really came together after the election. And so I think whatever happens and whoever goes for it, that will continue. We all have very different strengths and I think all those strengths work very well together. But what uh, about for, the co leadership party? Structure? With the you see uh, this all has to be we, we look to be honest we do have to think all this through we're going to have discussions over the next uh, few days um and uh, each of us individually will have to think what what we want to do um and what's the best way to do it you know so mm-hmm. as I said like all those all those discussions all those thoughts all those my my head is so full um of all the the different permutations at the moment um thats so I just need to to clear clear all that through and get uh, and, and get some structure on those thoughts and I would imagine it would be the same for the other TDs. There is a, an
5: issue though that prior to this news yesterday it has been around for a long time and this is whether it makes sense for two small, small social democratic parties your, yourselves and the Labour Party uh, to be for instance running candidates against each other uh, when you've got so much of your agenda in common. So should that be a priority for the new leader whoever they are or leaders whoever they are uh, to if you like make up common ground with the Labour Party if not a merger at least not running candidates against each other for instance, in the locals.
4: So, like Catherine spoke yesterday at the press conference in relation to this, and she was saying, like you know, that the last thing that we need in politics is is less choice, um, and, I, and I do agree with her on that. It's, you know, there there there's always every now and again it sort of raises its head this this issue of a merger with with the Labour Party, and I suppose what I would say is that you know, at no stage since I've been have, have I been elected have we within the social democrats discussed it in that it's not something that really that features in our discussions we are very very focused on growing our own party uh, very focused on increasing our branches across the country increasing our councillors and you know moving towards the local elections and the general election and that is that is our 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 focus Um, so whilst there there can be a bit of discussion in the media, um, in relation to this merger, it's not something that really features in our discussions at all. So, um, All right.
5: Um, yeah. Then, if you were a leader or if you were a co leader, would you go into government with Sinn Fein as a social democratic party?
4: So, what's very important to us is our policies um, and being able to work on our policies and actually affect our policies. And so, any election, I mean, you know, it's, we're, we're so Sinn Fein's not a red line, it. it would be policies that would decide. We, it will be policies, yeah, it will be policies, and, and you know us us getting social democracy and and uh, th- those ideologies and and you know the ability for governments to plan forward, all that kind of stuff is so yeah. so important. And, and if we can get that through in a government, then we would absolutely give it serious con- consideration.
5: It was interesting. Uh, We had two women standing down as co-leaders of your party yesterday. The names that have been mentioned in terms of the leadership, certainly women, uh, appear to be front runners, yourself and and Holly. Um, But... We hear more and more women politicians, including Holly Carnes and yourself, talking about the abuse that women politicians in particular have to come up with. We hear parties across the country talk about the difficulty they will have in meeting the 40% quota next year because it's getting harder and harder to attract women into politics. As leader, if you were a leader, what would you want to do about that?
4: Look, I, I think we, we, we actually had the Quarter organized for a meeting last night, in the dole of women TDs to talk to talk about this specifically. Um, it is certainly a, a problem uh, for female TDs. It, it you know, the, the, it is a problem for male t, uh, TDs and politicians as well. Um, I think there is a, a general, um, uh, I suppose, more toxic discourse um, at the moment. But it, it's so important that our Dáil and our Shannon and our local councils really reflect uh, what's in the community and, and that's from a gender and, and, you know, other, you know, we need diversity um, in politics. And so we need to make sure that whilst we have these discussions and acknowledge that there is a problem with this toxicity and this level of aggression towards people who, who are at the front face of, of public service, um, we also we need to be very cognizant that we do need more women in politics, um, and you know to to encourage in because it's actually by getting more women and more people of, of diversity into politics that we will actually get a better system. And I think. It, that would actually work better for everyone and I think that that in itself would address those issues of toxicity um All right. so uh, it it's it's going to be uh, I think a, a difficult thing to achieve I think there's there's a cultural shift that's needed um and and how we do that I think is going to be a challenge
0: for us Jennifer Whitmore social Democrat TD for Wicklow talking to Onya Lawler on Morning Ireland. And later on today with Claire Byrne, Jennifer's party colleague Gary Gannon, TD for Dublin Central, was asked whether he would be in the running for the party leadership.
1: No, I won't be contesting the leadership of the Social Democrats. I think for me, there's a multitude of different ways of demonstrating and showing leadership. And me, I'm somebody that likes to be part of the team, the collective, and I'll be showing leadership within the party, but that won't be in the top position.
6: When did you make that decision or why did you make that decision?
1: Um... I'll, thinking about where my skills and my attributes are best placed. I'm somebody that definitely likes to forge a culture within any team that I'm part of. I've obviously, this is something that. Happened quickly over the past couple of days and I just really thought where my skills would be best placed is Mm -hmm. building the organisation.
6: There were reports this morning, the Irish Independent, saying that you're going to back Holly Kearns. Is that
1: right? No, I think that's based on a comment I made last year when I was asked, did I intend to contest the leadership election of a position that wasn't vacant? And I said that then there's probably people that would be better placed than me to do it. I think Holly is a generational politician in a lot of ways. I think she appeals to a multitude of different demographic age groups. I think she's absolutely fabulous. The same could be said for keen who I've known for a really long time, and Jen. So I'm going to wait till everybody lays out their stall and make a decision. But we're blessed with talent in the Social Democrats. And it's, I just feel really... I well, feel you've I'm got just, four TDs to pick from and you're out. So there's three left. Three now. Yeah, and we're and they're incredible TDs. And we both appeal and we both have different strengths and very different characteristics. And for me, they're not only colleagues, mm. they're friends. So I'm going to wait till they lay out their stall.
6: Were you surprised because there were some saying yesterday that Holly would be a a shoe in that nobody else would put their head above the parapet are you surprised that it's going the way it is that Jennifer Whitmore was on this morning saying that she hadn't made her mind up yet did you think that she would have had a a firmer line on whether she was running or not
1: no because it would be quite close to these people Um, we found this out on Tuesday Um, I was very quick to make the decision because actually something that I'm very content with. I think Jen, Keane and Holly have to consider talk to their families and make that decision over the weekend. I think it was, it's was it been a very short space of time so I think people will lay out the stalls to decide whether they're going to run mm-hmm. or not and I'm just really excited about the next phase.
6: Do you expect that Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy will run as Sock Dems in the next election?
1: Yeah, I watched uh, Roisin and Catching yesterday. It was a really positive experience but I've seen catching and Roisin and there was just a real glint in their eye of just excitement mm-hmm. and I felt like this was a really... Powerful way of not in any way stepping down, but I suppose stepping aside and ready to take on a different role in the party. Mm -hmm. I've seen a real motivation there. I mean, they're already talking about the different roles you have in terms of um, talking to new candidates, galvanising the base. They look really excited.
6: Yeah, I mean, you've all said how surprised you were at the decision. Did you not have a hand, though, in giving them a nudge and saying, look, you know, we're here (laughs) Uh, waiting, the new generation.
1: You know, catching and Roisin, as well as I do, you know that there'd be nobody that could give them a nudge. (laughs) Um, No, we we were all taken by surprise by decision. But... uh, Look, they've been building the party for eight years. Mm-hmm. Like eight years is both a short and a very long time. There's a real difficulty in building a party. I don't think many people can really understand the complexities involved in that building branches, having to deal with so many different personalities over the time, myself included. Really getting there. Everything you see is part of a new party that has 60 days, which is no mean fee, was built by them.
6: So so they will have a role, will they, in, in the party? Oh,
1: they will go have.
6: On, on from absolutely. here.
1: Absolutely.
6: Will it yeah. be a bit like... Man United, uh, Man United, you know, are playing a gig, big game. They have mm-hmm. their manager there standing yeah. on the side. But Alex Ferguson is up on the stand yeah. glaring down. It's going to be uh, a bit like that, is and it? And as a
1: Man United supporter, my favourite image today <laughs> was Eric Van Tag sitting having dinner with Alex Ferguson and talking about how important that impartment of wisdom and mm-hmm. voice is. And I definitely see that role that Roisin and Catchum will be playing. I know that's a role Roisin and Katchen will be playing. You don't see that it's going to be a problem for the new leader or leaders? Potentially. Um, no, no. It hasn't. The geo-leadership has actually, I feel, worked very well for us. Now, as whether we continue that, that's up for discussion. But it's not going to be the case. So Gadgin and Roisin, look, they're, whatever, they're the finest parliamentarians, I believe, in terms of their wealth of knowledge, their uh, understanding of policy they can only be an asset.
6: Just going through the, the other four TDs yes. in the last election. So for three of those Sinn Féin had a huge per- surplus mm-hmm. in those constituencies and they had no second candidate. So that's likely to change mm-hmm. isn't it next sure. time out? I think you'd accept that. So that's going to put you under huge pressure in the Social Democrats. Like the party had a very good election in, in 2020 but there's an awful lot of work to do now to solidify that position in a, in the face of what Sinn Féin are going to do running more candidates in all of those places.
1: Completely and that's the task that's facing us and I think we're really well placed to confront that Um, Sinn Féin had a very good day out and they picked up a lot of momentum in the last election I fully expect us to have a very good day out and pick up a lot of momentum over the next year Mm -hmm. I think the Social Democrats have a message that is very sellable to an audience and there's a group of people out there there's an electorate out there that's waiting for a moment to be able to vote for more Social Democrats candidates in the position. There's
6: another way, of course, that you could, you could come into this oh, well, next election, right? <laughs> sure. You could look at what you have yeah. and look at what Labour has and arguably with the people who have historic links to Labour and maybe were less likely to do the deal with Ivana Bacic gone now and with Ivana in as leader, a merger might be more on the cards than it was yesterday.
1: I really, like I actually do appreciate why that question is asked There where some people in the media do. Yeah. But you'd also have to appreciate for us, I've no connections to the Labour Party. They are a separate entity to me. I think there was there is certainly an overlap in some policy. But it's very different traditions. The Labour Party can be very proud of their 100-year history. But the Social Democrats are a party that have emerged out mm-hmm. of civic society, out of their referendums. There are people who, like myself, were politically forged out of the period of austerity that see ourselves as a very separate identity to that. Mm-hmm.
6: Do you have a problem with Labour's role in austerity then, in governing during austerity?
1: Look, for me, I don't, that would have been part of my political formation, but for the moment I just respect that they are a different entity to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be respected. I think we are a party that has attracted a huge amount of new people into politics and have space for people in politics. Like Holly Kearns went from not having any political home to being a very prominent TD within five years. I don't think that would have happened in many other political organisations, for example. And I'm very proud of what we've built and what we are building, as I'm sure are Labour, but they are separate. And I intend to keep them that way
6: mm-hmm. But but you would have respect for Ivana Bacic I mean are you saying no merger ever
1: I also or respect.
6: or I haven't really considered it up to this point I mean what what are you saying because you're saying you so respect Labour
1: I respect Labour I respect Richard Boyd Barrett as well for example yeah. I respect a number of different politicians particularly across the left spectrum But that will not not be a pathway for me. It's not something that I'd consider.
6: That's not something you want to do. That's not something. Because if you look at the numbers, and there's a poll out this morning, coincidentally, in the Irish Times, so your party's at 2%, down 1%. Uh, Labour's at 4%, up 1%. So a combined tally would put you in a really good position overnight going into the next election.
1: Yeah, sure. But polls don't really capture where a small party is in terms of its national profile. Like we went into the last election probably similar in the polls and we brought me over. We came back with more TDs than what the polls would have suggested. I think, again... Labour are a very separate entity to ourselves and the Social Democrats we're building our political party and we will not be I
6: accept that but I suppose it depends what you want to do I mean do you want to be in government I want to be
1: a massive party of government that is absolutely that. But are am going to do what that. Should but be. But you're at two so percent, Gary. I know, and the only way is up, and <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the challenge facing us. And that's the challenge we've accepted. We started off on not actually existing just a mere eight years ago. So I accept that challenge of being on two percent in that particular poll. We're mm-hmm. in other polls, um, and polls are not reflection of where the smaller party. So can
6: where do be. you think you can get to in terms of, of percentage uh, levels before coming into the next election?
1: Oh, I think we're going to pick up massive momentum. So well, what? What are you? What's your target?
6: Four percent, five percent, no, I don't think 6%. I'm gonna.
1: I'm not gonna hold myself to a target. And can
6: Holly Kearns do that for you? I mean, you must have made, you must have looked at yourself mm-hmm. and and looked at the other people out there and said, of the four, I'm not the one who can do that
1: job. No, I looked at myself and said, oh, I've huge levels, uh, I've a lot to bring to this party, but it's not necessarily by driving myself to the front.
6: Yeah, but well, who can do it then?
1: Oh, I t- honestly, I think Holly Kearns, Jen Kane. They are three people with immense leadership qualities. They appeal in different ways to different audiences. I Mm -hmm. think any one of them, I could row in behind, and not only could I row in behind. I think there is. You mentioned Holly first, though.
6: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take that as a Freudian uh, slip. When will you make your decision on on who you're going to opt for?
1: Um, When the other three lay out their stalls when they have time to and you have to respect the fact that we found out about this on Tuesday mm-hmm. I think people have a Ah you knew it was coming come no, on didn't.
6: you knew it was not. coming um, there must have been some sort of a little push because I don't do think it. I mean you've when I said to you about giving a nudge to Catherine and Roisin you said if you know Catherine and Roisin they wouldn't ex- take a nudge you know they're not those kind of people hmm. they're also not the kind of people just to step down because they thought they, you know they're just not
1: Look I think what we demonstrated yesterday this wasn't a step in the down this was a step in the side to let a new generation mm-hmm. or a new person emerge. Merge and and you're
6: absolutely yeah. sure they were not encouraged I'm, in any way I'm to do
1: that absolutely positive All and right. if you've seen the atmosphere in the room yes sir, you would have seen that
0: that was Social Democrat TD Gary Gannon on today with Clare Byrne A man has been charged with the murder of an Irish-born bishop in Los Angeles. David O'Connell was an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And on Morning Ireland, Father Jarlath Canaan, originally from Sligo, who's pastor at St. Cornelius Church in Los Angeles, told Mary Wilson about his late friend, Bishop O'Connell.
3: We've been friends since 1971, 52 years. So uh, a lifetime of friendship. In Ireland, uh, we used to talk about the uh, you know, Anamkara, the sole friend. So uh, Dave, was, uh, Dave and I were kind of the sole friends through all those years. Uh, we travelled together, we played together, we uh, worked together. So, you know, on I mean, a personal level, a tremendous shock and a tremendous um, devastation, really. Um, but yet uh, grateful to have known him uh, through all these years.
6: You say that he had a great capacity for friendship.
3: Yes, I, that's true. He was not just a good friend to me, but friendship was something he was good at and um, had a very wide range of friendships. And I suppose notably up and down the um, the social scale, uh, he had friendships with, the you know, most of his ministry in life was with, you know, poor uh, immigrants, uh, disenfranchised, you could say, people on the margins, but he also had a capacity to develop relationships and friendships with the um, uh, movers and the shakers, not just the moved and the shaken uh, with the um, city council, with mayor, the mayor, police chiefs, uh, all of that. and it was you know it was that capacity that I think especially when he was in the um, downtown in the um, in a city in south l a that gave him the ability to bring people together and to get community, bring together people who are not uh, talking to one another and not uh, coming together.
6: Will you tell us a little about that work? Because the thought occurred to me that over the years he must have encountered many victims of gun violence.
3: Oh, absolutely. And uh, all of us have done way too many funerals of young men, especially uh, you know, uh, killed in in um, in gang violence and in, uh, in violence in general, and of course he was 27 years down in South LA, so you know it was um, the Bloods and the Crips and all the uh, in Latino gangs and uh, all of that. So it was very much a piece of the uh, of the environment. You know, you he great heart uh, for the suffering, and so there's all of that suffering that he was driven. To want to try to do something, uh, you know. I suppose Rachel, back when we were down in the city in the 80s, um, police here were like an, you know, occupying army, and they were distrusted. So it became clear today that um, that somehow had to change. And so he began to uh, develop those relationships, bring uh, develop to community of which he was a part, and through whom he ministered. And uh, if you like, to bring their private pain to public speech and then develop a community action uh, from there.
0: That was Father Jarles Canaan on Morning Ireland. With the shortage of some fruit and vegetables on our shelves due to bad weather in Spain and Italy, Claire Burns spoke to Agnes Boucher-Hayes, home economist and lecturer at the Technological University of the Shannon, about how we can keep our food fresher for longer. Morning, Claire. It's the
6: cucumber that always gets you because it pretends <laughs> to be fresh and then you touch it and it disintegrates. And it in disintegrates, your hand. Yeah. yeah. Well, Beautiful. one of the
2: things I suppose that we need to think about is where we put things and how we put them and how we store them. Because you're right, between the energy crisis and people, you know, Holland and the UK and ourselves not heating the glass houses. So there is going to be defaults and shortages as well as bad weather in Spain over like 12 nights over around zero degrees. That's not allowing fruit to and um, vegetables to uh, flourish. So we need to be careful with what we do have. And the cucumber, interestingly enough, is one that you wouldn't store in the fridge. Shocked at this. I know. I know <laughs> a lot of people are. So it actually, if the flavours, there's the tomato and the cucumber. A lot of research has been done on these two. There's a lot of research that goes into all of these things. But a lot of research has been done on the tomato and the cucumber. And the genes, uh, the flavour gene that is in those, both of those, are reduced or you know they. you get a grittiness or a lack of flavour when they're stored at cold temperatures, so from a flavour point of view, you'd want to hold them out of uh, fridge, so they don't need to go in the fridge. And really, you need to remove the cucumber from the plastic, and you can store it just cool, dark, dry place. Um, you can have a little a little box. I wouldn't have a plastic box because you do need a certain amount of airflow through these things. But equally, taking the tomatoes and putting them in a, in a cool, dark, dry place that would help to store them. You'll have good flavour, and it, w- it will last. A little bit longer. And the other one that's usually in the bottom of that fridge as well is the celery. Now, yeah,
6: that lasts for ages, though. That's kind lasts, of a hardy vegetable, isn't it? It is
2: very hardy. But again, just to our own weather here in this country last summer and, you know, this winter means that we do have a little bit of a shortage on the celery, which we will produce like celery, cabbage, carrots, potatoes that we will produce ourselves. So you remember, you can freeze celery. People don't tend to think of that. But if you have an abundance, if you have a bit that you're not going to use, chop it up put it into a bag and put it into the freezer put it into a Ziploc bag and
6: put it into the freezer yeah, To my shame I would never have thought about doing that but it makes complete sense It
2: does and I suppose if we can think about it this way Claire when we walk around a supermarket we can. when you walk through the freezer aisles you're beginning to see more herbs vegetables like chopped up peppers
6: Chopped, chopped onions you can buy onions. can't you now Yeah absolutely and, yeah.
2: and you can do that yourself if you have onions that are beginning to go on the outside that they're beginning to become a little bit sludgy on the outside remove the outer layer Air, chop them up and you can put them into the freezer and they will freeze and you can use them then. Now, there might be a slight change in flavour if because these are things you don't need to blanch. I'm, I am I was trying to stay away from adding work. You know, if you just do all the chopping and put them all in, you know, you could even put in a mixed bag of vegetables. We talked about myrpaw before, which is the onion, the celery and the carrot. Any of those bits that you might have, that, that old carrot that's in the fridge, peel it, chop it, put it into the freezer with the other bits that are, and it does take a little bit of work but minding things I suppose does take a little bit more thought and then a little bit of effort as well. But you'd
6: be delighted then when you go to make a cottage pie. Well,
2: you've got these things there. in the freezer, yeah. The hard bit's done. Or even just put it into a soup, because I know we talk about food waste, Claire, you know, often enough. We're always kind of, we're always hinting around and trying to give people ideas on how to keep things going for longer and not throw away because we do, we're divils for buying in Ireland as well. A lot of reports have shown that Irish people tend, we love, the, we love value and we're very much drawn to things. If we see two for one, we'll buy two for one. Whereas some of our European Counterparts will only they will go out very much with a list and only and buy what's it. required. Yeah, we're
6: well, getting questions in about the greens and the plastic mm. that they're bought in. Should you keep them in the plastic or like why are we like we all have to buy vegetables, don't we? We do in we plastic. Do. If well, you're well, shop, shopping in a supermarket now, yeah. I know some people avoid all of that and they're they're great, but for mm. most people, they're buying bags of salad and and so yeah. on. So let's talk about the bags of salad first of all. Should you keep them in the bag or or what should you do? Take them out?
2: Well, um there's First thing I'd like to say is that if you buy loose vegetables, it's probably better and you can hold them for longer. and and you don't have any used by or best before dates Mm -hmm. because they're being removed. So when it comes to lettuce now, there's a couple of things you can do here, Claire. that will actually, it will surprise you. Again, small effort, large rewards. So with lettuce, for example, if you buy a head of iceberg lettuce, which is, you know, it's got a nice robust crunch to it and you want to hold on to that. So if you buy the head of iceberg lettuce, slice off what you need, then get a piece of um, kitchen paper, or a tea towel you don't have to use kitchen paper or a tea towel any sort of dampen it down place it where you have cut and then put the iceberg lettuce into a plastic bag and you don't have to take the air out of it but that will and put it in the bottom of your fridge because that will ensure a little bit of humidity a little bit of a little bit of water to keep it fresh and that will last a long time if you buy the bags of lettuce which we do because they're very attractive you know you've got different colours different leaves mixed leaves so when you get those bring them home wash them either use a salad spinner or a tea towel I think we've spoken about that before put them into a tea towel and spin them around make sure you hold all of the tea towel corners Uh, And spin them around it's <laughs> very very satisfying uh, and then you put them into a glass if you have glass containers and glass is obviously more sustainable than plastic or if you have a plastic container a little bit of kitchen paper a little cloth and damp cloth in the bottom of that put your salad leaves into it and they will last you much longer than you had ever thought but again store them in the correct place which is in the bottom of the fri- fridge the top of your fridge will be warmer at the end the bottom of your fridge will always be cooler things that you don't um, one that you don't need to cook again will generally be on the top of your fridge. In the middle of your fridge, you'll have your dairy, some of your cooked meats, and then towards the bottom, the bottom layer of your fridge will be uncooked meats. And then you will have special drawers to store vegetables and maybe fruits. Then I'd keep them separate as well. Do you put fruit in the fridge? You can't. Well, sometimes I do. I I, I like cold apples. <laughs> it's a personal preference yeah. thing because I like the crunch. So I would keep my apples in the fridge. Other than that, I really don't. I I would keep any um, um, bananas uh, during the summer. I'd keep you know the softer fruits out of the fridge. I'd keep berries in the fridge, but you know it's just purely personal preference. Mm-hmm. Apples, uh, fruit doesn't necessarily need to be kept in a fridge, and bananas certainly not. But I would keep my bananas separate from the other fruit because of the ripening, the plant hormone ethylene that's in the um, that's in the that, that's produced by fruit as it ripens and it's there in nature to cause the ripening but it also causes decay so you want to slow that down so I'd keep them slightly separate I I would have oranges maybe um, in one place, lemons, you know the citrus fruit in one place, the apples and it would be in a different, just not all in top together in a fruit bowl because then one, as do you know the, the old adage uh, one rotten apple and that's got to do with the ripening hormone so once one goes bad that will emit a lot more of this um, plant hormone, the gas and it will cause the other fruit in, to go, to okay. go to, to ripen and decay at a faster pace.
6: Tess says Delia Smith's tip is to wrap celery in foil in the Fridge, which keeps it fresh for much longer.
2: I've, I've I've read that. I would personally, I don't do that. I would actually uh, just I keep it in plastic, that it would come in itself because that has actually been developed with smaller. It reduces down the amount of air that would flow through with celery itself. There's has, Delia says to do it, Delia's very good, but there's no scientific foundation for that as far as I understand at the minute.
6: Six o'clock this morning, I was searching for the maple syrup at home in the uh-huh. press uh-huh. because mm. I knew you were going to tell me that it should be in the fridge and that's where it is now as we speak it's working it's working Claire. <laughs> yeah. it's working I listen I'm listening to you, Agnes <laughs> but explain why because maple syrup I would have thought just like honey does not need to be in the fridge
2: doesn't uh, maple syrup doesn't have as much sugar present in it so there's a um, uh, so the pure maple syrups wouldn't have as many sugars present in it as honey would have and that's a sim- it's, it's as simple as that it wouldn't have the 60% uh, threshold that would be required so so more microbes can grow and bacteria can grow on it, and it can flourish when kept in, when kept in a press rather than a fridge.
6: But there are some things that should be in the fridge: uh, pesto, for example, tartar sauce, salad cream. All of those mm. things should be in there.
2: Yeah, but I mean, the thing is with pesto. I don't know what your household is like, but pesto is one of those things that it's really nice, but you might not use all of it. Yes, freeze it clear. You oh. can put it into a freezer and here we go now. You'll say she's nuts, but you could no, actually... No, it's
6: not that. It's just that I want to be able to use it instantly when yes. I want to be able
2: to use it. Yeah, now I'm going to, I'm going to solve... This. <laughs> this is where you're going to think that I'm slightly nuts. But if you have um, an old ice tray, put it into the ice tray and you pop it out as required and it melts beautifully.
6: Yes, it's you, simple. Probably, you probably can cook you, with it straight away, can you? From well, you
2: can, but if it's in a jar, if it's in something, you know, if you put it into smaller containers, you can use it straight away. But if you put it into the ice tray, it's or if you have any herbs, put them into an ice tray, fill it with oil, put it in, and that can be used instantly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had things that were on the turn, like basil can be one of those ones, or any kind of, you know, leafy herb, the more robust ones, like the rosemary's, you can just, I, I would freeze those instantly. We've spoken about that before. But pesto, you can keep in the fr- fridge and I would always make sure that there's a film of oil on the top of it to prevent the aeration so that whatever is in it is working but no other bacteria is getting into it but you would keep that in the fridge as well as any of the you know salad creams you will see read the back of the labels Um, now a lot of salad creams they all have salad creams and mayonnaises if you were making them from scratch obviously you'd keep them in a fridge because they're made with fresh eggs a lot of the ones that we will buy now have a lot of other things and preservatives uh, present in them and stabilisers to ensure that they don't separate and that we can
0: get shelf life out of them but again I would hold those in, in in the fridge That was Agnes Boucher-Hayes on Today with Claire Byrne and also on the show the rising cost of romance Couples preparing to get married this year are seeing the rising cost of living reflected in their wedding budget and Jessica O'Sullivan Who's the editor of Wedded website One Fab Day? Spoke to Claire. Good morning, Claire. How are you? I'm good,
6: but you've heard about a number of couples who've seen the cost rising. Now, this is despite they they've already secured a price per guest from their venue. One couple contacted you who had five euro per person added on to the agreed price. Is that right?
7: yes that's correct we have been contacted by a number of our readers um and many of them you know talking about how stressed out they are how the kind of extra financial cost is making them a bit anxious about their wedding. Um, And the thing is, it's anecdotal for now and we we don't know how widespread it is yet across the industry. But I mean, the staggering figures you just quoted earlier in the show would kind of imply that it's going to be more prevalent.
6: So these are people who have gone to the venue, could be a year or two ago, and agreed Mm -hmm. the date, the number of people and the price. But they're now being told that that price is going up. Is that how this is working?
7: Yeah, so you would sign a contract with your venue, and every single detail would be would be agreed in advance um, with regards to your package and how much everything would cost. Um, I think the thing is when when couples do find their their dream venue and the date is available, they get very excited and swept up in the romance of it all, and sometimes maybe don't stop to think and look at the uh, the small print. And this is really where people are getting caught because some contracts will have a clause um, within them that allows for um, increasing the cost per head um, when it comes to inflation and others won't. Mm -hmm. So couples now are finding that they're looking at their um, contract and this clause is there and there's really very little they can do about it. So
6: so if the clause is there, if the hotel has said to you in that contract, we have the right to increase uh, the price that we have agreed with you, can you still go back in and and try and haggle with them a bit on what they're looking for?
7: Absolutely. I mean, uh, we work very, very closely with all, all wedding suppliers, including venues. And none of these Um, people are in the the business of, you know, um, stressing out their couples. Um, They want to give them, you know, the day of their lives. Um, Many of these people are, you know, family-run businesses, uh, independently-run venues. They live and breathe weddings. So, And they kind of get by in word of mouth as well. So they want their couples walking away, you know, having had a positive experience. So I think a lot of venues are open to coming to kind of an agreement that's fair to both parties, because they do understand that this is an extra stress on the couples. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, the person who uh, actually had her her cost increased by um, five euro per head uh, had a meeting. She arranged a meeting with her venue to go in and try and negotiate a more favourable rate or maybe extras or something like that. And um, she was very happy with the outcome.
6: Okay, so you can do that. You don't just have to accept what you're being asked for. You can try and cut some sort of a deal. It's not just venues, though, who are struggling to keep the the cost at the level that they agreed with the couple. It's also the other suppliers. And I mentioned the florists, I'm sure people who make the cakes, the the bakers and so on. Are they facing rising costs and are, are they having to have to have difficult conversations with couples?
7: absolutely and i suppose when you're looking at say the, the the cost of your flowers versus the cost of your venue which is half of your budget um you're you're getting into smaller figures so maybe you can absorb those a little bit you know on the chin um, and but the thing is anyone who's supplying who's supplying a service that requires materials is absolutely going to see an increase in their overheads um we recasted a lot of our um content on site which deals with the costings of various things that come with weddings. And what we're seeing is that uh, people like uh, makeup artists, hairstylists, photographers, videographers, they're kind of holding fast on what their prices were um, during the pandemic and or before the pandemic, except if there's a transport cost involved. But anyone who has materials, the cake makers, the stationers, the, the florists, they have had to increase their costs. I mean, it's they're absolutely passionate about what they do but it's also their their living, so they, they you know they have to keep their business viable
6: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're having to increase their prices. Who's paying for weddings these days? Have you been able to find out in your conversations with your your couples who use one fab day, Jessica, if they're paying themselves or are their families helping out?
7: Yes, couples today are very independent. um most of them pay for their wedding themselves. um they either save or they take out a loan. um and uh, I think I think a lot of them want to stay independent because as soon as you start bringing, say, parents in, paying large sums um, towards your wedding, they get a say. And uh, that can open up a whole other can of worms when it comes to the politics of who comes mm. and what type of day it is and that kind of thing. So we're seeing, you know, today's couples definitely want to do their wedding their way. And the way to do that is to kind of stay financially independent from their parents.
6: Yeah. And and, and, the, one, and the one day is, is important enough to them that they would take out a, a loan to finance it.
7: Yes absolutely Um, and the thing is as well is that um, we're so generous here in Ireland um, as guests uh, the cash gifts that people give go above and beyond and some couples would factor this into um, that when they're doing up their budget that they would expect to get x amount maybe in cash gifts some people even ask for cash gifts only. Um, It seems a little bit kind of cold but um I mean if you're trying to fund a wedding that's 36,000 euro which is the average of what our readers spend then you know you kind of have to think about
6: these things. Absolutely. Listen, I think I'd be putting in the invitation I'm being charged an extra 5 <laughs> euro ahead can you top up the present.
0: <laughs> that was editor of website One Fab Day Jessica O'Sullivan on today with Claire Byrne. Finally today, this morning, Ryan Tubberdy spoke to two amazing women, nurses Jane Richardson and Laura McCormick. We'll let them tell their story. Here's Jane. Yeah, I suppose my background is uh, paediatric
8: oncology and palliative care. And that's where my background is. And that is where my great love is.
9: Whereabouts were you working for most of your life?
8: Uh, Most of my life was at the UK and Ireland in, in Crumlin. So in Crumlin. That's yeah, the St. John's Ward? The, John's Ward for 20 yeah. years. I worked there as an nurse specialist for 20 years. All right. To the day.
9: To the day. Laura, yeah. tell, tell us about your background.
10: Oh, my background. I started in general nursing, actually, in Arkeen and Waterford, which yeah. is now Waterford Regional Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, Then came up to Dublin. Romance brought me up here. And, uh, Why not? Yeah. And... Uh, I uh, worked in Port Duran for a couple of years and then went to do children's nursing in Temple Street. And I worked there for almost 16 years. And then I came across to uh, St. James's in Crumlin um, to work in what I do at the in moment. what you do, which is? Uh, looking after families with cleft lip and palate. OK.
9: Yeah. You, you both have extraordinary uh, and have had jobs in the sense that you have to deal, I deal in communication. You have to deal in a communication that no one wants to to have in their life. Let's face it. You have to say things that no one should say, but must say, especially to um, children of all people. Um, Talk to me through a little bit about that, Jane. Um, Talking to uh, parents, holding the hands of parents, uh, talking about a cancer diagnosis, talking to a child and saying it's limited. Um, Where do you go with this?
8: I, I first of all I would say that it's a very privileged role and it was one that I'm very, very privileged Why to. Why is it a done. privilege
9: to to deliver such sad and bad news?
8: Because it's horrendous. It's something that no parent ever wants to hear about their child. No child ever wants to hear this. It's the cruelest thing that can ever happen. But to be able to support families, isn't that a privilege to help them at their darkest time that you can be there to support them? No, that's an honour and a privilege.
9: I don't see it that way at all. I would be so scared and so upset and so I would find it so dark that I wouldn't see it as a privilege. I see it as a, as, a, as a desperately difficult thing to do. And I, that's why I'm asking you in a non-challenging way. Yeah. It's actually I'm in awe and I mean that of of. of people like you to do what you do. I could never even think about doing it, let alone acting on that. So talk to me about the privilege.
8: Well, I think it's it's an honour and I I think you're there to support the families because it's the families and the children that are going through it. We only play a small part in supporting them and helping them. And it's holding their hands. It's when the consultant has delivered this news, it's... you know, repeating them because, you know, you're not going to take that in. And there have been occasions where I have been asked. Um, I, I remember one girl in particular, the mum uh, unfortunately, just said, I, I can't tell her. Will you tell her? So how I went, old was the girl? She was a teenager, so she, you know, she knew yep. what was going to happen. She knew by my face, I went in and we sat down I held her hands. And we both cried. She knew, but I can't. I, I mean, you've met me before. You know, I, my emotion on my face. I don't hide it. No. And what do you say? What's the language? The language is age appropriate. That is the most so for important a thing. Girl, you uh, say. For a teenage girl, I, we sat in. And I said, I'm so sorry, darling. And she said, am I going to die? I said, yes, you are. I'm so sorry. I wish I didn't have to say this to you. I wish it was something different. I wish with all my heart this was something different. But we can't the doctors have tried everything you know and we go back over the history and she actually knew it herself and she said I knew I didn't want to just let my mom and dad know I knew but what was amazing about her is she wanted she was very aware of her parents and she wanted to write a will so I helped her write her will and she wanted certain things and we we did that and do you know even in such Sadness and such tragedy, there can be humor. Now, I know that sounds really strange, but it doesn't, there can be it doesn't sound strange humor at all. because um, I, I was talking to the priest as well, and the priest was mm. amazed by this girl, and he was saying, She's amazing. You know, she even, you know, she even wanted Poppy on the altar. And I said, Father, you didn't agree to have Poppy on the altar, did you? And he said, yeah, why? I said, you know, Poppy's our horse. (laughs) It's the first time I've ever heard a priest (laughs) curse. And it's probably the last time. But it was just, you know, you know, clever girl, clever girl, you know. But it's just, I mean, I've been privileged to do that on a few occasions for... Other children and, you know, different things and helping them carry out their wishes and doing things like, you know, one girl was angry. She'd never see the end of the Hunger Games. You know, another boy was angry, you know, that he wasn't going to see some big football match that was happening, you know, things like that as well. And it's just how
9: do they cope with the enormity of knowing?
8: Do you the, know, it's strange. A calmness comes over them. The ones that know really? some parents don't want their children to know. And that's, again, that's for the parents, depending on their ages. But again, the older children, they know a calmness comes over them. And the most important thing for them is families. They want to be with their families constantly, and constantly. It's yeah. family. It's That's the most important thing. And it's supporting the families and uh, helping them to, you know, have. And a good death sounds terrible, but it's to have as good as death as they can and it's getting supporting them
9: what is a good death
8: well there is there is such thing as a good death i well, know it's said no that, no i know but, you're no, saying i know but, what
9: you're saying i'm not trying to be but yeah it's, y- it's there is such a thing as a good there, death well i think I, do understand what you're saying. I think
8: it's more that the family feels supported and that the children are safe and secure and the children are safe and secure at home with their family, or in the hospital, or in the hospice, wherever is right for this family. Because there's no one rule, there's no one size that fits all. It's what's best for the family. And our roles as the healthcare professionals, and it's not just nurses, it's doctors, nurses, social workers, healthcare assistants. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had one uh, one child I remember as well who uh, was he loved the Henry the Hoover, yeah. and <laughs> the domestic staff would come in and they would deliberately. Would t- tear up papers just so this child could go and hoover them up they're the things we're talking about they're the caring aspect of it and you never you never forget that care and that never leaves you and the children never leave you and I think that's something that's really important every child that I've looked after has touched my heart in some way or other and you remember little things about the children whether it's their favourite Lego set or their favourite horse, their favourite animal or how they used to fight with their brother and sister and you know the funny things that would come up as well and there is a lot of humour in our job as well. I remember well, you know?
9: telling me um, in, in Post late late that time about the the young lad <laughs> I mean, the young teenage fella who's with the blood pressure.
8: Oh, yeah. <laughs> um,
9: you've got to share that story, won't
8: you? OK, so, um, yes, this is really not good for me, but um, we had a gorgeous boy. I hope he's not listening. Yeah. A teenage boy. And um, I was looking after him and I job shared. And he was OK. He was in. He was having his chemo weekly and going home. But my job sharer said to me, you, did you not notice his blood pressure is high? I said, no, his blood pressure is fine with me. <laughs> so anyway, monitors were organised at home. Blood pressure was fine at home and I went down to the ward and went how are you how's your blood pressure yeah it's up again I said that's really strange can I take it I took it, it was normal. So in my innocence, I was like, okay, is a white coat syndrome. Were you worried because you're out in the ward? What is it? And then I realised as the beautiful student nurse walked by and I went, did she take your blood pressure? <laughs> yeah, oh, no wonder it's up. <laughs> so then I had to go to oh, the consultant, no. tell the consultant I've actually cured him of his blood pressure. And so the consultant came down and said, yes, I believe Jane has cured you. Only women over a certain age are taking your blood pressure from now on because they're a different type of hot. And it was like, you know, <laughs> So there you go.
9: Menopause oh, has started. Oh gosh! Oh, that's so funny. Uh, the poor young lad's nerves were gone. <laughs> uh, Laura, you, you you mentioned that uh, cleft lip and uh, palate. Uh, yes. These are the related areas that that you do do with at the moment. At, yeah. the, at the moment, yeah. is that done in a in a, Can that be d- discovered if you like in the womb at an antenatal situation?
10: Yeah, they can pick up cleft lip. And sometimes,
9: occasionally,
10: that. they can pick up the signs that a patient may have cleft palate. And
9: so, that's it. would that be with the scan? With you, the scan, you, you an you ultrasound
10: scan, and the maternity hospitals pick it up. And they refer to us then when they've picked that up and we meet with the families. So, so there's a multidisciplinary team that I work with.
9: They won't say it on at the screen and say, by the way, we're picking this up. They'll say, will, will you go and see Laura? And you tell them, is oh, that no, right? no, they do. But oh, they they, they'll say it there, they, look, we see a cleft lip or what have absolutely. you. Absolutely.
10: They will discuss it with them and they will have that full consultation in the maternity unit and then they're referred to us. To
9: you. What what sort of, um, just to remind people what a cleft lip, by the way, or or the palate is. Yeah, it's
10: it's an opening in the lip and it can run through the gum line and into the roof of the mouth all the way back to the the front parts, the hard palate and the back is the soft palate. Yes, And it happens in utero and the face is fully formed by about week nine, ten. So if there is that opening there, um, it will remain there and then it will need a surgical intervention.
9: And when parents hear this, uh, they come to see you, um, how are they, generally speaking, with this news? It
10: varies. You know, as with all of us, we all deal with things differently. Mm -hmm. And um, it's certainly a shock. And, you know, that's the first thing to remember, that they they weren't expecting this. And then it's after they've dealt with the actual realisation of it, um, it's information then after that and the right information and understanding and getting that, that information together so that they know what they're dealing with and how to deal with it. And often the most pressing kind of concern is around feeding Yes. Um. Every mother wants to know how to feed her child, and so and certainly with breastfeeding as well. It's a you know it's an important factor if there is an opening in the lip and the roof of the mouth. Yes. Um. That it can affect feeding. So you explore all options. We and explore all options and we go through that and. Um, And then we would also counsel them with regard to coming in for their surgeries and the timing of the surgeries and the supports that are there. So, you know, I work as part of a a very big team and, uh, you know, it's just a fantastic service.
9: And when children who who are born with this and and become young toddlers and then into six, seven, eight and they're they're conscious of it, do you find um, that the kids are... Because they're born and know nothing else about it, uh, know another other or, or their face, if you like, that they're more accepting of it maybe than their parents or their or their peers or. Um,
10: I, I think again, say. that's it varies from child to child. On it it you know, and everybody is different, and everybody's perceptions are different. So, um. We look at everything on an individual basis and certainly um, different people will come back with different concerns. But generally, children up to about five or six don't even consider things. It's it's maybe around the seven to ten year age group. That no start to notice differences, yes. and then the conversations can start. Yeah. So it's preparing your child for those conversations and giving them the facts, and being able to have that information to hand sure. when they're asked.
9: The little girl that you were, you there was having her hair braided and, and the nails painted. I, I yeah, love, I love, I love that's her. a
10: that's quite some time ago actually, yes. and that Tell was in her. my my um. My When I worked on the wards in Temple Street yes. and uh, she was a long stay patient and she'd been in, but she loved being pampered. And <laughs> um, they, there was a ward with several kids that were in actually long stay. And so when all the medicines, when everything was done, um, we'd have maybe a half an hour of um, beauty treatments. Great. And so she loved getting her hair braided. And we were sitting chatting, and I was braiding away at her hair, and she was talking about her family. And I said, How's your mum? And she had a really strong Dublin accent. And she says, Oh, she'll be Ma's nerves are in tatters.
9: <laughs> she I, was six years old.
10: She was six years yeah. old. And <laughs> I remember that. And sometimes, even me, when I'm feeling nervous, yeah. her voice comes back. I think, Oh, God, nerves my nerves in are in tatters. Yeah, yeah,
9: that's great. You know, the, the other thing, Jane, about that, that I wanted to tell you, I know you're, these are kind of war stories in some ways, but yeah. the, the, you told me a story that I—I I, <laughs> only because you're such a good person, I knew you weren't making it up. But the the um, the teenager who chose not to have their leg amputated, yeah, um, can you can you remind people of that or?
8: Yeah, it was um, a, a child who had. The chemotherapy and there was an option of having their leg amputated, but he chose not to. He didn't want that. And there's lots of discussions with the consultants and with the pa- the mum and the child and the parents. And he chose not to. And unfortunately, when treatment it didn't work out and, you know, he was facing end of life. He specifically asked me to make sure that I told his family that he didn't regret that. And that was really important to him when we wrote it down and, you know, he signed it because he wanted me as his witness. But it was it was talking about for them not to feel guilt and not to regret it that he wouldn't he didn't want that and he felt he would have died sooner if that had happened and he never wanted it so you know that's part of the job that's that part we of the job do. yeah um yeah.
9: and the necklace then of course was a lovely yeah, gesture
8: yeah he had a necklace and what he wanted to do was that uh, he wanted his parents to have more children and he wanted the necklace to be broken up into bracelets for his future brothers and sisters. And that was so lovely. For it's, just, it's so thoughtful. It, that's what I was going to say to you,
9: that, they, that these young people are going through the, these awful horrors and yet they, they're, they're thinking about... They're
8: always thinking of their family. They're always thinking. And I've seen it, you know, from a five-year-old who was sharing, even though, you know, we thought the child didn't know anything, giving their favourite toys... To their siblings,
5: yes.
8: or you know, kids giving their phones to their siblings, or giving whatever's precious to them for the, you know, their mom or dad, or you know, children are amazing. We learn so much from children. Yeah. We, you know, it really is. We we learn every day. We laugh and cry every day. With I can kids. imagine. And you know, the ki- the kids are amazing. They are absolutely amazing. I mean, it's just a, a funny story as well because you know, I'm aware of the listeners and I, I yes. you know, will be upset, and you know, there could be some parents listening as well. But just. One of the funny stories, which always makes me laugh, is that um, and it was a sad situation in that the child was newly diagnosed and the consultant was talking about the chemotherapy and, you know, just full disclosure, you have to give all the, the names of the chemotherapy and all the effects and side effects. But he, he said the word, oh, and a side effect, of this drug. And next minute from a five-year-old in the bed, excuse me, mister, don't do drugs. <laughs> and it was just this absolutely brilliant, amazing, amazing absolutely amazing. You why, know.
9: why am I thinking of a magnet, Jane? What have I got in my oh. head here? No, no, we, were, we had a, we, there was definitely a story. I'm, 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 tra- I'm actually looking at my paper. Okay. Go, I know so th-
8: shall we say a friend? There's some mad story so about a magnet. There's a friend. Magnet. So, can we just say things have moved on amazingly and forward for, for happened, menopause Jane? and perimenopause <laughs> care. But there was a time where there was a theory, an alleged theory, that a magnet in your underwear would help with perimenopause and menopause symptoms. Which all sounds wonderful unless you're a nurse and you are going to do a surgical procedure <laughs> and a dressing on a child which involves a metal tray because you need a metal tray oh, to keep things clean and sterile and so doing a dressing and a friend gets stuck to that dressing table and then has to explain to the parents and child why they're moving out, going into the treatment room and being cut out of their uniform <laughs> and said underwear. So yes, okay. the things you do. Shall we move on? Well,
9: <laughs> do you know what? This is part of the reason we... We met, obviously, because <laughs> yeah. you, you were on our show, on the, the, the business show, talking about Chill Jill. And when we met, I, I was really struck by you. You're, you're a great double act <laughs> as friends, but also as really lovely people. Thank and you. You're, you you became friends. I love how your friendship was formed on the basis of not just that you were collecting kids from the same crash, but at what time you were collecting the kids from so your two kids were the. you were the kids looking at the window going are they here yet yes oh. well they it,
10: were Yeah. Our, but, my son is in the creche and uh, he's a year older than Lauren Who and then Heather came along a little while later to the creche as well so the two of them were in the creche Are the three of them were in the creche and they would be sitting waiting for us to they go. You were always first working. in and last out. out and
8: they used to have bets on whose who's dad was oh, going to collect and oh, whose no. house they were going to because we'd be racing home no. because we never left on time because you know again with patience it's, hard to, walk it's hard to walk away.
9: It's hard to walk yeah, away. This is why is. you're so good that you did. and that, this is going back what 18 years now? Yeah. yeah. Or, or are you well, there about 15? 15 years, yeah realistically because yeah. they're all uh, young adults. Yeah. Yeah.
8: So. In fairness to the fresh ma- manager she was so understanding she was a nurse herself so she got it. She got it. She understood but we were always laughing. Always so late, always racing to collect mm. them. We're always late.
9: And at what point did you both say uh okay your friendship developed into um, a business about obviously centred around the menopause, the area of the menopause. Was there a, a eureka moment or was it an evolution of, of things?
8: You're always going to kill me again. I was struggling and I went to her for advice. <laughs> what, no, what, when you say struggling, in what sense? So I was struggling with the symptoms of perimenopause. Yeah. So, I mean, I had gone from being a very calm, organised per, person to forgetting people's names you know, getting anxious of brain fog, ringing myself up at three in the morning, going, hello, me, just remember, you need to organise this, this, this book, this blood's yeah. in, da, da, da. you know, all of those things. I was going, this is crazy. And I was getting anxious that I would forget someone's name. That was a big thing for yeah. me, especially in my job where you're caring for families. And I so yeah, I went so to Laura and just said, look, there has to be, you know, something out there. And I suppose at the time, at the time, things have moved on wonderfully from then. We thought, wouldn't it be nice because... Laura
10: well, I think the thing was you you went away for a weekend oh, with her yes. husband. Oh, she's it was
9: really outing me now. She's <laughs> getting her uh, is there anything left in the closet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all so that my she's
8: husband, Chris, I love you. Um, <laughs> you we do now. We were 20 years married and it was yeah. COVID. And uh, we decided to go away to a local hotel for the night, yeah. which is great, except the air condition wasn't working comp- properly. And because they were, you know, short staffed and only opening, I didn't want to complain. So I went over to a le- local DIY shop and I bought a dog cooling um, mat to lie down for the hot flushes off. and Chris went this is not the night I envisaged and it was just so embarrassing a romantic night so in
9: with a yeah, dog, dog cooling mat hey look mat, I'm sure he made or you day. made up for it along the way
0: Jane Richardson and Laura McCormick on the Ryan Tuberty Show Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. And as always, if you'd like to listen back to any of the shows in full, you can do that on rte.ie slash radio one. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. So from me, Louise Herity, take care.